Franchise law is continually changing. And luckily, there are attorneys out there who can help us unpack everything that's happening. Well, we can't do everything in a 30-minute podcast, but join me as I talk with Eli Bensignor, who is a partner at Lathrop GPM, a law firm that represents franchisors, and he really discloses some very fascinating information. Welcome to the Franchise You Podcast where key industry leaders provide education and inspiration. Here's your host, Dr. Kathy Gosser, the director of the Yum Center for Global Franchise Excellence at the University of Louisville. Welcome to this episode of Franchise U. With me today, I have Eli Bensignor, who is a partner with Lathrop GPM, which is a well-established, age-old law firm. They focus on many things, including franchising. So, Eli, we're so glad you're here with us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me, Kathy. Of course, and you have a lot of great things to share with us, but let's start talking about you. So, you're a partner at Lathrop GPM, and you graduated from the University of Michigan, then earned a law degree at Villanova. You worked in the courts for a bit, which I found fascinating, then on to law firms. And so you've been with Lathrop GPM for almost five years and you became a partner this year. Congratulations. And you have also been named as a legal eagle several years by Franchise Times. So let's talk a little bit more about your law career. So you worked for a judge when you first earned your law degree. Why the transition to a firm? But that was always the plan for me was to go private practice. But coming out of law school, I knew there were going to be very few opportunities to be able to clerk for a judge. Because once you start practicing, it's going to be hard to leave practice, jump into a clerkship, go back to practicing. So I thought it was the perfect time to do so. And with that, I got to see the judge's insight and evaluate cases from their perspective. And that was just been an, an invaluable uh, asset throughout my career, particularly as I'm now evaluating issues for my own clients. So I'm thrilled that I had the opportunity to do that. Oh, I can see that because that allows you to see the other side of not even the aisle, but gosh, of the bench. So that's fascinating. And then you found franchise law. How did you find that? It's so specialized. Yes, honestly, I think like most franchise attorneys, I kind of just fell into it. Yeah. Um, But what sparked my interest for me was the fact that it does have an intersect of different areas of law on top of it. And so while it's very specialized, you know, it touches upon intellectual property, corporate, employment, real estate. And so just having those different facets, I found to be fascinating, plus all of the franchise law on top of it. My first job was working for a franchise, cheeseburger, cheeseburger, making milkshakes and doing the takeout counter. So oh anything really feels like it's all come full circle now. Okay, that is really full circle. So you can say that again. What is the part about franchise law that interests you the most? So I'd say a really unique aspect of franchise law and what I find the most interesting is how it involves this long-term relationship between the franchisor and the franchisee. And a franchise system is only successful if the relationship is mutually beneficial to the parties. I mean, a franchisor's success is tied to the success of their franchisees. And so, you know, kind of just like a marriage, because that's in ways what this is. It's a business marriage. You, know, you can't ignore the relationship side of things. And so at times, even just you know the, the tone and manner of communication could heavily influence the desired outcomes, you know, regardless of the actual substance of any issue. And, and so it's like knowing when to bring the carrot versus the stick and, and all of that, I think, um, what I find to be the most interesting. 
You know, what I love about that is it's not a typical response that you would think you'd hear from an attorney. You think it may be, oh, I love to delve into the contracts or, you know, I love to delve into this specific component of a legislation or a regulation, but instead it's a relationship, which is what I always teach the students is that it is about relationships. So I also read that you love to cook. So before we start talking more about the law, tell us what your specialty is. Ooh. I don't think I have any specialty. I kind of just like trying new things. And recently I made fresh pasta with my two-year-old son and he had a blast doing that. And so it got a little messy, um, yeah. but I think I might stick with that until he gets bored of it. So let's switch back to the law a little bit. So Lathrop GPM. Lathrop GPM has over 300 attorneys in 13 offices across the U.S. And it's actually a merger of two long-established law firms, like the 1800s law long ago, Lathrop Gage, which was founded in 1873, and Gray Plant Moody, which was founded in 1866. What a legacy. Can you tell us more about your firm? Sure. So we merged on January 1st, 2020, which was, you know, oh looking back, gosh. a very interesting time to merge. <laughs> yes. Um, but it, it's worked out well. And we are a full service law firm and the merger allowed us to grow existing practice groups that each legacy firm had while adding on new groups that, you know, one had, but the other didn't. And so the firms are really just a perfect fit for each other. And I think our current firm, Lathrop GPM, reflects that. Our cultures remain the same, just on a larger scale. And you mentioned how old the legacy firms are. And you know, now that we're the combined firm, for such an old firm, we have young and innovative people in our leadership positions. And I believe you know, we are forward thinking because of that. And for example, our firm has decided we're never going back to requiring attorneys and staff to be in the office five days a week. That's just not the way anymore. We saw there's a better way. And you know, why go back for the sake of tradition? Wow, that is kind of surprising. And you know, Eli, if I may say so, you are a full partner and it's not like you're at the end of your career, which is how it typically used to happen. You're still pretty much at the beginning of your career. That demonstrates exactly what you said. I mean, that's evidence of what you've just stated about your firm. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, you know, I was thrilled to become a partner here. And I think, you know, we're we're going to be around for a long time and excited to be part of this firm together and hopefully move up and become on leadership position perhaps sometime in the future and enjoy my esteemed colleagues. But we have a great firm going and happy to be a part of it. That's that's great. And, you know, Lathrop GPM typically represents the franchisor. So that's what you do in your practice. Can you please describe some of the typical work involved? Well, I'd say probably like a lot of attorneys, every day brings something new. You never, you know, you're going to start your day thinking one thing and it ends up being something else. But I'd say in general, you know, my typical work involves advising both emerging and seasoned franchisors mm-hmm. with you know, regulatory compliance, such as preparing updating FDBs, but also just assisting them on day-to-day matters, whether that's with their franchisees, their suppliers, and just whatever else we can do to help them develop and prosper. And so in a kind of addition to all of that, I'd say another large portion of my practice includes being special franchise counsel on M&A deals for both buy and sell side of franchise systems so that the clients may be the franchisors or PE groups. Yeah. Any specific industries or just all over? 
certainly all over. Everything from restaurants, home services, staffing, med spas, uh, you name it. And I think it's probably safe to say for our practice group that across the board, we probably represent every industry that has a franchise in it amongst all of us. That is definitely a lot. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about mergers and acquisitions because there's definitely has been a lot of that. And with the influx of private equity, we've seen even more of that in franchising. So I bet you've been busy. Yes, absolutely. Um, You know, various PE groups want to add on either emerging concepts or concepts that complement each other. And so you start to see some of these large players evolve in the PE and franchise space. And it's certainly exciting. It is. Well, since you are a legal eagle and an expert in franchise law, Eli, I'd like to ask you some specific questions that you are perfectly poised to respond to. So first of all, let's talk about the FDD because I read a lot of FDDs. I'm sorry to hear that. (laughs) No, I actually, it's a strange thing. I love to read them. I know it's very strange. You say you're sorry and I enjoy it. But one of the things I've always noticed is the concept of pending or past litigation. And my students always ask me, why is that important? Why does a potential franchisee need to consider that? How would you respond to that? Well, I think it can potentially provide a window into the state of the franchise system, especially if there are several disclosed matters, whether pending or prior litigation, because there could be a big case that could upend the entire franchise or uh, depending upon the value of it or the potential claims. And it's important to know what franchisees are claiming against the franchise or whether there are breach of contracts or other type claims. I'd say it's important to keep in mind, though, that not all disputes need to be disclosed in the FDD. So for litigation that is pending or, or prior litigation that's held liable, those are the only kind that need to be disclosed. So if the parties already resolve the dispute, uh, before litigation is commenced, then it won't be reflected in item three of the FDD. So you're not going to see everything. And I think it's also important to keep that in mind. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Because those lists typically look quite short. When you read the item three, it's typically not that lengthy. So that makes sense what you just said. Thanks for clarifying that. The other question I always get asked is, why do some franchisors not report item 19? Why not? So I think I read a study a few years ago that referenced that, you know, about 70% maybe of FDDs included in item 19, right? So why, what's up with the other 30%? Yeah. The first question every prospective franchisee wants to know is how much money can I make? And if that's not their first question, you almost wonder like, why are they getting into this? Yeah. <laughs> and so as you are aware that any financial performance representations or FPRs that a franchisor makes must be disclosed in item 19. Otherwise, making that FBR would be a violation of the franchise laws. So why wouldn't they have it in their FDD? I think there are two typical reasons why. The first might be just simply the numbers are not as positive as they want them to be. Maybe they included an item 19 in the past, but they had a down year or two and they just don't want to disclose that. So they decide to pull it all together. Or maybe they're a brand new franchisor and still they want to build up the numbers before they start reporting them. Then mm-hmm. the other typical reason, of course, there are a handful of them, just might be that they don't have a reasonable basis for disclosing FPRs in their item 19. And you have to have a reasonable basis in order to present FPRs. 
So examples of not having a reasonable basis, I'd say typical one is they're now selling a franchise under their FDD that is different than their existing models. For example, uh, if what the existing models had been a 10,000 square foot blueprint for, let's say if it's a QSR, but they've now decided to go down to a 6,000 square feet. Presenting the number, they just might not have a reasonable basis on per, for presenting numbers based upon the you know, substantially larger footprint model. So therefore, they might not include it. Uh, that's a very good point. One I'll be sure to mention. So thanks for sharing that. Interesting. Yeah, of course. So, you know, I've also seen an item 19. I haven't seen everyone do it. So I'm not even sure if it's, if it's required, but I see them list that by quartiles, like what their top 25% do versus bottom and, and the in-between. Is that, is that required or is that something they choose, a franchisor would choose to do? Great question. So a handful of years ago, a franchisor did not have to break it down evenly, you know, all by quartiles, or mm-hmm. if they wanted to, they could show just the top 10%. Well, a regulatory body called NASA, not the space kind, but another kind, <laughs> um, came out and created these rules that said, and it's not statutory, they're really just rules, but a lot of the states and the registration states uh, impose them. They say, in order to show any subset, you kind of have to show the other side. So for example, you want to show the top 10%, you now have to show the bottom 10%. So quartiles is a way that some franchisors will break it down for for people. Okay, but they don't have to use quartiles, but if they choose to, they have to show the bottom and the top, basically. Exactly. Yep. So they could just show the overall average if they wanted to and not break it down by a quartile. Perfect. Okay. That really helps. Thank you. So when you look at the FDD, what do you think are the two most important items? Item 19, hands down, is the number one most important one. Yes. Uh, Because again, that's what franchisees want to know. And because of the information that's in there and the reliance upon that information, that ends up being the most contentious or the one that is often brought up if there's a litigation, mm-hmm. whether for based upon information that's in item 19 or information that might have been told to a franchisee that's not in item 19. Because again, doing that would be a violation of the franchise law. So there's a lot of sensitivity around item 19. And again, it's important that your franchisees are successful for a handful of reasons. Mm-hmm. There are a handful of other items that I would say are uh, maybe the runner-up for most important. I mean, you have something like item 12, discussing the reservation of rights, uh, which is very important for a franchisor, especially thinking, you know, long-term, what can you do? Mm-hmm. But in the end, I would probably say item six and seven, you know, it might be a tie for, for second place. With prospective franchisees, not only do they want to know how much mm-hmm. can they make, but how much is this going to cost me? So item seven, estimated initial investment is very important. Mm-hmm. And to go along with that, item six, you know, the various fees that the franchisees are going to be paying. Mm-hmm. I'd say it absolutely kills me if I'm working with a startup franchisor and when we're preparing the document and we're talking about the royalty fee, they kind of just pick a number out of thin air. You've got to make sure the unit economics work. Again, if your franchisees aren't successful, 
the franchise owner and the franchise system isn't going to be successful. So really drilling down into those numbers, having a reason for why you're charging a 4% versus a 6% royalty, vice versa. Because I'm, as I'm sure you've seen, the item six, the list of fees, it can get long. So once you start charging all these fees, they add up. And you've got to think, can my franchisees make a living and prosper based on all the fees that we're charging them? You're right. They do add up. And the list vary. Some are extremely long. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And I can't say that I'm surprised at what how you responded. Because my favorite item is item 11, which is all about the support. But I'm not a franchisee or a franchisor. I come from a different perspective. And I won't go too deep into item 11 because we could talk about that for hours. But I do want to ask you, what kind of guidance do you give to a franchisor when it comes to detailing the training that they provide? Because that's one of the big things that a franchisee is purchasing is how do I use your business system? So what kind of advice do you give, Eli? Yeah, and I would say for purposes of item 11 of the FDD and, you know, even specifically the training chart that you had had to include that has the rows with the subject, hours of in classroom, on the job, and location. I honestly tell my clients less is more. You don't want to go into having an entire paragraph or what you're going to do day by day. Keep it high level. You know, for the categories, it can be something as simple as sales training or, you know, just general onboarding information about the brand, you will certainly have all those more detailed plans internally. And you can talk about those things on discovery day, for example, and provide more information there. But it's not necessary to really go into that level of detail in the FDD. That's good to know. Thank you for that. So let's talk about the evolution of the FDD and and word that I've heard or read about is that there could be some changes coming. What do you see happening maybe over the next five years with the FDD? I think the general nature of the FDD has remained uh, pretty unchanged since the amended FTC rule in 2008, which in part helped rein in states kind of imposing their own requirements for changes and felt like it was getting a little out of hand. And I would say over the past few years, it starts to seem, you know, there are some states in particular, which I don't need to name, but you can probably guess which ones they are, have been inserting themselves into the FDD again. Right. And it's kind of created a, what I feel like for some instances, a fractured approach and having to go back to having state-specific FDDs again, which, again, the, the amended FTC rule is trying to avoid and create more uniformity. Now, I have a feeling that brand isn't going to decline anytime soon. I, I hope it does, but uh, we'll, we'll see. Mm. Yeah, it's so difficult when it becomes decentralized. It's it's really difficult, especially for franchisors that operate countrywide. So yeah, we'll just keep an eye on that. Speaking of things that are always changing, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about, so why is the joint employer concept a threat to the franchise model? So I would say by having a franchisor be deemed a joint employer, they would become liable for acts of the franchisee. So if the franchisee violated waging hour laws, then that would tie the franchisor and the franchisor would be deemed liable for those violations and breaches as well. So it really kind of erodes some of the fundamental aspects of the franchise concept and that franchisees have their own independently owned and operated business. That's the danger there. So how do you think that that concern affects franchisors' actions or support of franchisees? So it really forces them to consider 
you know, do they just pull a lot of assistance and guidance that they, you know, otherwise would have been providing and probably overwhelmingly provided 10 years ago before this became a hot button issue in order to reduce their liability exposure? Or is it better to still provide some of that guidance while potentially having that liability exposure? And it's created a very gray area. And I think there's this internal struggle because franchisees want the assistance, but now franchisors are going to be held liable. You know, where's the balancing test? Or, you know, where where do you want to uh, lie within that area? So it's it's certainly a hard decision. It is. And I know in my experience, our franchisees were always asking for, do you have some harassment training that we can provide to our employees? And that was very difficult. It was so what we would do is we would look for third-party vendors who could provide that type of training. And that was frustrating because franchisees didn't really understand why can't you provide us the training you provide your own equity-owned restaurants? Why can't you do that? And this joint employer really did tie our, you know, tie our hands when it came to that. Yeah. And so the NLRB, which is the National Labor Relations Board, is coming out with a new, or they came out in 2020 with a proposed rule that would further modify the joint employer standard that took place and and went into effect in 2020. And so under the old rule, which is the current 2020 rule, a franchisor can be deemed a joint employer. It actually exercised direct and immediate control over some of the essential employment terms. Mm -hmm. Under this new proposed rule, a franchisor can be deemed a joint employer with a franchisee if it possesses the authority, whether directly or indirectly, or exercises the power to control you know, the employee's essential terms and conditions of their employment. So it really goes much broader, just the fact that if they have the authority to do it, they could be deemed a joint employer. So now franchisors, they have to look at kind of what rights they have, not only under their franchise agreement, but what their operations manual says in regards to providing that assistance. So as you were saying, you know, providing or, or recommending they use third parties for a lot of things just may be the way to go in the future. You know, that is limiting and, and it can be frustrating for franchisees who may not understand this and may think, why aren't you supporting us? So those were kind of the things that I would hear. And it was difficult from a franchisee's perspective to understand that there are reasons why why we couldn't provide that type of training. What kind of guidance do you give to help franchisors through that? Well, I think it's, you know, you certainly have to look at your operations manual and at times Mm -hmm. make it clear what is required versus recommended practices. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, if you tell a franchisee, this is what we do at corporate, but, you know, totally make your own decision. We have no control over you. They'll often follow what the franchisor does uh, just because they know, hey, if, if that works. Mm-hmm. Granted, now being an attorney for franchisors, I was say, you know, make sure you're playing disclaimers and things like that that the franchisee knows to consult with their own attorney because right. you know, state laws vary throughout the country. And so you don't want to provide guidance, on, you know, just because your state law says something, another state may have totally different standards. So you need to be careful in that aspect. Which leads us to, Eli, these state relationship laws. There are 18 states at last count that have separate relationship laws. Can you just describe what these laws are about, maybe the essence of these laws? 
Yeah. So I'd say on a high level, it's the states are providing greater protection for their citizens or for businesses located in their states. And that protection goes beyond what the federal rules provide. Uh, So in general, they provide that before a franchisor can terminate a franchise agreement, the franchisor needs to have good cause, which is often defined within the statute and may impose additional hurdles such as requiring uh, more notice or opportunities to cure before the franchisor can take adversarial action against the franchisee, whether that's termination or not renewing the franchise agreement. I can see that. And I like the way you position that. It really helps to understand it. It is that the states are protecting their business owners. That is, it sounds like the vein that they're taking in creating these laws. Do you think most franchisors just go to maybe they look at the 18 state laws and they just go to the one that, and I don't, I don't want to use the word toughest, that's probably the wrong word, but maybe the strictest. Do you think they then create their policies to that strictest law so that they cover everyone? I, I don't think that's probably a typical approach. I mean, that would certainly be the most conservative approach, right? right? That's conservative. Sure crafting it that way. And yeah, and I, you know, um, at least as lawyers by nature, we're conservative. Uh, but I think, you know, the CEOs that we're dealing with are usually on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Yes. So there's always that that balance there. But I'd say you don't want to let necessarily the tail wag the dog. And so you want to create policies that make sense for your system. And obviously, you need to always comply with the applicable laws. But if you're in going to be based in a state that doesn't have relationship laws, and perhaps you don't plan on going out to the West Coast servers on the East Coast, then there's no point in kind of crafting your policies based upon that. And if you do, then you just contact your franchise attorney and we'll be uh, the ones to make sure that you stay within the lines. Well, that is one thing that we always talk about is it's so important to have legal representation, folks who are well-schooled in this. And speaking of which, Eli, you have so much knowledge about franchise law. I mean, I can't even imagine all that you know. If you were a student right now, What do you think is the most important thing to know about franchise law? So this might not specifically answer your question, but I would say don't view franchisors and franchisees as always being opposing or adversarial parties. Again, when the system works as it should, the two should be aligned in their goals and outcomes. And this goes back to what I said at the beginning about this being a long-term relationship and you need to treat it as such. But I think that also still touches upon things like the joint employer issue. You know, the potential passage of laws, think about how are those laws going to affect this special franchise or franchisee relationship for better or for worse? How is this going to impact the franchise model? What is the franchise model going to look like 10 years from now if some of these laws pass? And always say, you know, think what's up next. I'm really glad you brought it back to that. And I love how you brought the term for better, for worse, which coincides perfectly with your description of the franchisee franchisor being a marriage. So well played there, Eli. So my last question with your career, you've done so well. What are you most proud of? I would say that when my clients have an issue and whether it's a franchise issue or anything else that I'm one of the first people that they call, you know, with Every client, my overall goal is to be a trusted advisor for the decision makers at the company. But really, in order to be an effective attorney, you have to be someone that not only provides legal analysis and you know drafts documents well, 
but you couple that legal framework with strategic business recommendations that are grounded in reality. And my clients know that I do that and I'll walk them through considerations and implications of, and potential responses there too. So the fact that I'm at the top of their call sheet, not to date myself with that term, uh, means I'm achieving that goal as being a trusted advisor. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Eli. You've given us so much information. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Franchise U is brought to you by the Yum Center for Global Franchise Excellence at the University of Louisville. For more information on the center, visit business.louisville.edu slash yumcgfe. Thank you for listening to Franchise U.